Uh, as Hope mentioned, we are in the middle of the series called Vanitas, and, and that simply is a, a, a Latin phrase, a Latin word that we get our, our word vanity from. Uh, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book that we've been going through, it's used in, a, in several different ways. It's used uh, to mean meaningless or transient or, uh, you know, something that just doesn't last or absurdity, madness, some, some translations call it. And that's, that's what we're looking at. We're, we're spending a, a number of weeks in this book. And I want to say every single one of us here... Every single one of us here, whether uh, we do it consciously or subconsciously, have had, to, have had to answer this question, which is, what is the good life? What is the good life? Every single one of us in our hearts have, have asked that and with our choices have answered that question. And this book is intensely practical and it's intensely committed to trying to answer that question. And that's what we'll be looking at today. You know, is it, is it, is the good life for you quiet at home with a book and coffee, but so often there's laundry to be folded or kids to be put to sleep or papers to write, or is that just me? Or, or maybe the good life for you is just making sure that those grades stay up. Maybe the good life for you is making sure that you uh, procure that right position. You know, what is it? You have to ask yourself, what is it? What is this thing? Can you put your finger on it? That if you had this one thing, ah, I have the good life. And that's the question we'll be looking at. What, what does it look like? What is it? What does it feel like? And a lot of the time, you know, we feel in our culture, in our day and age, not just here, but that we've reached the pinnacle we, we have reached the pinnacle of humanity, and if we haven't, we can actually see it in a horizon. We're very close to becoming the best humans that ever existed. And what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery is that we don't look back. We don't look to our past in order to live rightfully in our present and plan for our future. But we're going to be looking to our past. We're going to be looking about 25 to 3,000 years pass into this book of Ecclesiastes where we can learn what is the good life. Let me pray before we jump in. Father, thank you again for this beautiful day. Not despite the rain, but we love the, well, I love the rain, so thank you. Uh, we thank you for all of your good gifts. We thank you that we have enough health and energy here today to be here. And Lord, I pray now for your Holy Spirit that you would help me to forget the things that will not be helpful here for your people, but that you will help me to recall the things that will build up your people, that will draw people who are far from you near. Maybe those who walked in here today knowing they don't love or know or even want to know who Jesus is, Lord, draw them near today, I pray. We ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, questions. Questions are extremely important. Statements do this. If, if, if life is a house, statements tell you what's inside the house. They can explain what's inside the house with great detail. They can tell you what's there, what's not there. But questions invite you into the house. 
And questions are extremely important for us. And as we combed, as I combed through the book of Ecclesiastes, he asks about 29 questions, nine of which have to do with uh, asking the question of what is a good life? What is it? And I'm going to breeze to them really quickly. You don't have to turn there. But in Ecclesiastes 1.8, he says this, the preacher, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 2.22, he says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils underneath the sun? 3.9, what gain has the worker from his toil? In 4.8, he says, for whom am I toiling? What's the point? And depriving myself of pleasure. What gain is there in 5.16, he says, to him who toils for the wind. Have you ever thought about that? Toil for the wind. I mean, we've heard that a couple times already. But just think about this. You go to work. You, you clock in. You clock out. You do your 38 hours. You do your 40 hours, your 50 hours, whatever it is you do. And at the end of the week, you go to your manager and you go, can I have my paycheck? And he gives you a box of wind. And that's what you walk home with. Like, have you ever thought about the absurdity of what he's saying? Striving after for wind. It sounds nice, but when we think about it, and when we think about the week, just think about the week you've had. All the work that you put out. Maybe the tears that you put out. Maybe the blood. I mean, I got cut at work. The blood that I poured. <laughs> and to think, for wind? 6.8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? 6.11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And finally, for who knows what is good for man? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He loves asking this question. What is the point? What is the gain? What is the good life? And chapter 7 and 8, we won't go through every single verse there. We would be here for a very, very, very long time. Uh, so I think the preacher here shows us three ways. In light of everything that we've learned, that pleasure, toil, all of these things are relativized by death. Death is always looming in the background. He says, enjoy yourself. But there's death. But he gives us a few tips on how, what it looks like, and three ways. One is actually taking death seriously. One of the ways that he shows us what the good life looks like, what it is, the first one is to take death and hardships seriously. Expect them. The second way is to avoid conceit and understand the limits of wisdom. To avoid conceit and to understand the limits of wisdom. And finally, he tells us, to learn how to live in paradox and intention. We don't like that. But he teaches us to learn to live in paradox and tension. So we're going to jump in. Chapter 7, verse 2. Now, maybe this is your first time picking up a Bible. Maybe you, you took one uh, from the welcome table on your way in. When I say chapter, that's the large number. And verses are the smaller ones. But it will also be up on the screen behind me. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And he goes on for a few verses saying, okay, well, life may all be relativized by death, but there is at least some things that are better than others. And one of the things he says is that uh, to be in the house of mourning is better to be in the house of gladness, of joy, of mirth. Just the other day, uh, uh, Friday, in fact, uh, one of my uh, colleagues at work, I just found out that her mother-in-law uh, passed away in her sleep, just like that. Wasn't expecting it. She was actually, uh, her health was, was actually on the incline. She was getting better. But death took her. At the same time, my sister-in-law just had a little baby, a little girl, a beautiful little girl. And so often what we would do, we would run with just joy and gladness. And we should. And we should be sad at the death. But what he's saying, if all we want to surround our lives with are births and kisses and butterflies and hugs and rainbows, you're a fool. He's saying there is wisdom. Wisdom in death. There's a quote that I I, I found the other day from this book called Room to Grow. Death is a teacher, he says, and I quote, death is a teacher, and among the things that it can teach us is the wide and often tragic gap between the questions, what is important to you, and how do you spend your time? Experiencing the death of a loved one or pondering our own death can provide perspective on our lives and help us see what is truly important and worthy of our devotion and what is not. I dare you this week to just take a tally of how you've spent your time. I looked at my battery life on my iPhone, and it can actually tell you what, what, uh, how much battery you spend on each app. Do that. It's going to shock you how much time you actually spend on Facebook. But you, got, you have to think, this is saying, so often we run from even the thought of death, from the scent of death. But it's a teacher. It's a master. It teaches us that we are transient. You won't be here. One of the Parisians who, who was there, I saw this, uh, this little clip on Facebook, and he was walking by while the shootings were happening. He was talking on his phone. I don't know if you saw, if you saw this. I don't know even if it's real. But he was, he was walking by, he felt his phone explode, and he showed his phone, and there was a bullet, a stray. He was this close to death. And whenever any one of us comes that close to death, that shakes you to your core. Death is a teacher. And scripture, the Bible will never, listen, the Bible will never ask you to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to the realities of the world. The Bible does not, the scriptures do not provide us pat answers to the struggles of the world, to the pain of the world, to the evil of the world, to death itself. It's not a pat answer. It gives an answer. 
but it's not a pat answer. Death is a teacher. We're going to skip down to verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So often, the turmoil in our life, the struggles, the busyness, what it asks us to do is it asks us to look back. Oh, the good old days. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real. I'm going to be raw with you. I have three kids. I love my kids to death, but it is taxing. It is absolutely taxing. And there are points in my day where I look back and I say, oh, boy, the good old days when I just had two. When I had two, I said, oh, boy, the good old days when I just had one. And when Anthony was around, oh, boy, remember, Catherine, when we were just so free? Always the good old days. I remember I went back to New York just recently by myself. And I've been here for about nine years. And when I first came here, I was quite depressed. I mean, I, I did nothing. Uh, I was just hanging around the house. I, I, in a year, I gained something like 30 kilos. I was just so depressed by not being in my hometown. As beautiful, I, I lived on the beach for the first couple of years. I mean, I, crazy, absurd. But I went back recently, and I thought that I was going to go back and just love it so much because all the fond memories and come back and be depressed all over again. But while I was there, I realized that our memories often betray us. And our memories often deceive us. And your memories often deceive you. And so often we look back and we say, oh, the good old days. The good old days were not so good. And he says, it's not from wisdom. So he says, live in the present. Take death seriously, but live in the present. And don't let the hardships of the present make you look falsely at the past and say, oh, how I wish we were back there. Instead of looking at the bright future that the Lord may have for us. Verse 14, he continues, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It says when the, when the days are good, enjoy them. And, and that's a virtue in and of itself. Some of us don't know how to even enjoy the good days because we focus so much on the day itself and we, forgot, we forget the person who's given us the gifts. To enjoy something properly is to enjoy it and walk through it and look through it to the one who's given you it. Enjoy it properly. But listen, the Lord has also made the day of calamity, the scriptures say. Consider that. What does that mean for your life? To enjoy the good days, but to consider, listen, to consider when the chips are down. When that screen comes back and there's cancer. When that loved one dies. When the miscarriage happens. Consider God in that day. You want to live a good Life and wise life, the preacher tells us, remember death, consider it, take it seriously, and take the hardships of life seriously. And he continues. 
where he asks us to avoid conceit and understand the limits of wisdom. Verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What? I don't know if that's what your, your initial feeling when you read that, but when I read it for the 15th time, I said, what, what do you mean Shouldn't, shouldn't we be righteous? Doesn't the Bible call us uh, uh, Matthew, in Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Be holy as he is holy? What does this mean? And so often, and let me tell you this really quickly as a, a disclaimer, I have no uh, inherent Hebrew skills or language skills, but the key to understanding this so often, it's hard to come through in translations. The verb to be wise is written in the reflexive form, which means a better translation would be something like this by Walter Heisman. He's a, a scholar. He says, do not multiply your righteousness and do not play the part of the wise in your own eyes. Why destroy yourself? Do not multiply your wickedness and do not be a downright fool. Why die before your time? And what he's saying, is he, what he's saying here is in your own eyes, in yourself, within yourself, don't think that you can ever be that righteous. Don't go after this self-made righteousness. Do not be over-righteous. Do not think that by your righteousness you can even escape death. Because as we'll soon learn, as we'll soon see, is that everyone is wicked. So don't you dare He's saying, think that you can live the wise life by being religious. So often we, we want control, and we want control not only of our circumstances and our world and our uh, laundry basket and our bank account and our work, but we want control of God. And how do we do that? We put him in our debt. I put God in my debt. If I go to church, and if I preach, and if I read, and if I do the right things, and if I avoid the wrong things, if I multiply my righteousness, therefore God is in my debt, and he owes me. And the test of that is how do you respond when suffering comes into your life? Not just when it comes into the world and when you see it on the news. When suffering comes into your life into your bones, into your stomach, when suffering comes, what happens? Do we say, I don't deserve this, but, but I've, I've been so good. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done X, Y, Z. I've given. I helped people. I don't deserve this. And we try to multiply our own righteousness to put God in our debt. And what happens is when suffering comes, and it will come, it shakes us to our foundation. Because we think we are building our own righteousness. Do not be overly righteous. Jump down to verse 23. 
as he finishes the section, he says this, the preacher, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is in madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters and who pleases, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I had not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All of this searching. I mean, we're, we're, if, if, if this is Solomon speaking, he had uh, uh, 700 uh, concubines, 300 wives. He acquired billions of dollars in one, uh, I believe it was $16 billion worth of gold in one year. I have searched everything. I have made aqueducts, and I have constructed parks and buildings, and I have sought out wisdom. I have done everything that any man, any woman would ever want to do. And at the very bottom of it all, he says, I have found one thing. One thing that I'm sure of, that God has made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. You know, people say that, that none of the, the, the doctrines, the, the, the beliefs, the, the teachings of the Bible can be scientifically proven. There's one. The sinfulness of man. Oftentimes, we're afraid to even look at our own hearts. Because we're afraid of what we're going to find. And so often what we do is that we, we stick our eyes outward. We, we just, we look at the world. We look at how jacked up the world is. And we say, wow, how bad are they? They're the bad guys. We're the good ones. Because we're afraid to even look at our own hearts. Because God, while he made us upright, he made Adam and Eve perfect. We have sought out many, many schemes. Know yourself. Avoid conceit and know yourself. You want to be wise? So often, you know, what I hear is these, uh, these sayings, these nice and light sayings. They belong on, co you know, on coffee cups and on your calendar. They're supposed to G you up for the day. I'm crooked. My heart is bent. This is what's supposed to make me wise. This is is a part of the puzzle that is supposed to lead me into the good life. It is completely backwards and inside out. But the scriptures say, know yourself. And he continues. Next chapter, we're going to jump to chapter 8, verse 14. Learning to live in paradox. There is a vanity 
There is a meaninglessness. There is a hevel. There is a transientness that takes place on earth. There is madness, folly, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also a vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much, excuse me, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. That's depressing for me. All of this seeking, all of this searching, all of this inequality, all of this absurdity that the righteous man receives what the wicked man deserves and what the wicked man receives what the righteous man deserves. Doesn't Psalm 1, the crown chapter of all wisdom, say that the Lord will prolong the days of the righteous and cut short the days of the wicked? And yet the Bible's not afraid to say, to look at the world and say, hey, the world is a paradox. The world lives in tension. And if you want to live the good and wise life, you need to learn to live with paradox and tension. But Christians don't like that, I often find. We love to have things neat and tidy We like to have all of our crosses, uh, all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. And we swear we still think that we're living in the Garden of Eden. See, in the Garden of Eden, when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents, things were good. In fact, God says things were very good. And in the garden, things were black and white. Things made sense. Everything had a, a place. But when Adam and Eve decided to seek out their own wisdom, their own ways, everything went awire. And everything that is wrong with the world today, everything that is broken in your heart today, comes from there. Stems from the disobedience of Adam and Eve when they broke God's heart. And as God's heart was broken, ours followed. And everything made sense there. But here in this world, we don't live in a black and white world. We live in a gray world. We live in a gray world where things don't make sense. Where the bad guys may get away. And the good guys, the righteous, get what the wicked deserve. That's the world we live in. And I don't know if you came here to be uplifted and to say, no, 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 hold on. But Jesus, he he comes to cross all our T's and he comes to dot all of our I's and he comes. I want to read something to you. 
if you can turn there, I think it's going to be up on the screen from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jump down to verse 16. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has exegeted him. He has come to show who God is. Where Ecclesiastes 8 ends, where we cannot know the works of God, Jesus came to display God himself. And yet, he didn't do that without paradox. He didn't do that without tension. He didn't come to wipe it all away so that we can live really nice, Christian, neat lives. He became a paradox. He is a paradox. He is a tension. Do you hear this? The God who created the universe, Psalm 33 says that God opens his mouth and stars come out. That he opens his mouth and light shines forth. That he says, let there be land and land appears. I mean, if I want to turn on the light, I have to go to the light switch or ask someone to do it. But he says, let there be light. And it's this very being who in Christ came down and received what the wicked deserve. The preacher looked at the world and he said, this is absurd. This is vanity. This is meaningless that the wicked would would prolong his life and that the righteous would be cut off from the earth. And God did not come to wipe away the paradox. He came to become one. He came so that you could live through your tensions. He came so that he can be with you, so that you can walk through your own paradoxes of life. He didn't come to get rid of it. He came to be it. So that when we face this world, when we we have the fortitude to look at death and evil and absurdity and vanity and meaninglessness, havel, we get to look at it in the face and it doesn't destroy us. Why? Because it destroyed him when he looked at it in the face on the cross. You're not destroyed by the meaningless and the paradox and the tension because he was. That's the good life. The good life isn't neat. 
The good life is not on the cover of uh, these home magazines where everything has a place. And your kids are, really, are playing really nicely with the spaghetti bolognese in the corner on the white carpet. I mean, I want that, but that's not the good life. The good life is knowing that God himself became a paradox and attention for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you came for us. We thank you that in the face of meaninglessness, in the face of, of the preacher's advice of how to live at least a decent life in this world by, by avoiding conceit, avoiding self-righteousness, how all these things are relativized by death because at the end, it all goes in the ground. But Lord, you came as a man of the ground to redeem those of the ground. So Lord, help us not to seek out these false and faux lives of, of neatness. But help us to live in the paradox that is this world. Help us to live meaningfully. May you, Lord, may the cross of Christ, where God became the ultimate paradox, may that reframe all of our questions. May that reframe all of our answers. May that reframe our worship. May that reframe what we love and what we seek out to live the good life. So Holy Spirit, I ask for your help now. In Jesus' name.